And as you turn, let me tell you that I am a little intimidated to uh, be filling the pulpit here uh, this morning. Uh, that's because uh, I love 1 Corinthians 15. For me, it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I really wish that I was getting to preach out of it uh, this morning. And uh, after the last two really powerful messages by Steve, I'm a little intimidated to, to fill his shoes, so to speak, here this morning. Don't you think it's been powerful messages uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 the last couple of weeks on the gospel, some wonderful, wonderful truths. And uh, in fact, this week, some of our, our staff were kind of joking with me and they say, you know, where, where do you go next? We did the molecular gospel two weeks ago. Uh, last week, we did the cosmic gospel. And where do you go after that? I mean, what's bigger than cosmic? Uh, galactic, maybe? I don't know. I don't know where you go from there. But we are going to continue this morning in our series on the resurrection. But we're going to do so by stepping out of 1 Corinthians for just one week. Steve will be back with us next week. And by getting into a very special New Testament resurrection passage, which is here in John 11. Many of you are familiar uh, with this passage. And it's actually a rather long passage. There's 44 verses. And so I've kind of wrestled the last couple of weeks about how to attack this. Because, uh, you know, for a church that has uh, been in one uh, book of the Bible for two and a half years, 44 verses is a lot to, a lot to swallow in, in one morning. I've tried to wrestle with whether I should just tell you the story or I should read uh, the entire passage. And guess what? We're going to read the entire passage. And I want to tell you why. I want to tell you why. Because I and we here at Bethel Church believe that God's word is infallible, it's inerrant, and it has within itself, without me saying anything else about it, it has power and has the ability to change hearts and lives. And so I know that this is a little bit of a change for us here this morning. And as our executive pastor of operations, Jim Kilgore, uh, is kind of famous around here for saying, nobody likes change except for a wet baby, and even he cries about it. All right? Uh, I know we don't like change, but we're going to go ahead and do it this morning. And we're going to hope that the Lord and the Holy Spirit will just be, come and start to work. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, you need to get beside somebody who does have one, because you're going to want to uh, see this story as I read it. Verse 1 says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now just seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Now that's quite a story, isn't it? And uh, to, to be frank with you, there is a lot of material here and there is much more than actually can be included in one sermon. In fact, we could do a whole series on this. But here is the dilemma of a, an associate pastor. I only get one shot at this, okay? I'm, I'm one and done uh, and everything I'm going to say to you, I have to say today and you'll hear from me again in a couple of months, all right? So uh, that, is the, that is the reality and that's all right. And the reason that that's all right is because there really is only one main thing that you need to get today, only one main thing that comes out of this passage, and there really is only one question that needs to be answered, and we will get to that in just a moment. Let's do a little background uh, information first, okay? What do you need to know to be able to understand this passage? First thing that you need to know is that you need to go back to John chapter 10, and you need to realize that Jesus, in John chapter 10, gets into a little spat with the Pharisees. He was in Jerusalem for one of the feasts, the Feast of Dedication, and he had a run-in with the Pharisees, and he happened to claim that he and the Father were one, essentially claiming that he was God. The Pharisees couldn't stand this. They got irate. They picked 
picked up stones and they were trying to stone him and kill him right there. It wasn't his time, so in some way he was able to slip away. He takes his disciples, they head out of town uh, to the backwoods up to a place called Batania, which is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So we've got a, a little map here, we'll show it real quickly. Batania is up here uh, on the, the, uh, the northeast side up there. Alright, while he's there... He's got some friends that live in a little town called Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem where he just was. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It says that Jesus loved them all. He had a special relationship with this family. Jesus gets word from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is very sick. Upon hearing this, Jesus takes the information and decides that he's going to do nothing and just sits around basically for two days. He then knows... Because he's omniscient in God. That Lazarus dies. And then he says to his disciples, let's go to Bethany. Alright? Now Bethany was 90 miles from Batania. You could travel about 20 miles on foot in those days. And so it would have taken Jesus four days to get there. The point that you need to understand is that Lazarus would have been in the grave for four days. And we know that because in those days... Uh, because uh, the Jews did not embalm, and because of the warm climate, they would have put Lazarus in the grave on the very day that he died. So they would have wrapped him in the grave clothes, uh, put him in the tomb, sealed the tomb uh, with the rock, and it would have been done. We also know, it's an interesting point here, that at that time there was a prevailing view uh, among the Jews that the spirit of the dead person would actually hang around the body for three days after death trying to re-enter the body. But then on the fourth day, when the body began to rot and decay, the spirit would give up, and the person wouldn't really be considered completely dead until day four, which makes some significance here as we get into the story. Okay, so there's the background. Now let's get back to the, the main question that we need to answer today, the main point of this story, and that is why. Why? Why didn't Jesus just heal Lazarus from Batania? We know that he could have, right? Lots of stories of Jesus healing people uh, in the Gospels. And we know that he even could have healed him from Batania because there were many times where he just healed people and he wasn't even there. He could have just spoken the word. And it's clear that the disciples and Mary and Martha believed that Jesus could heal him and wanted him to do so. Because neither the disciples didn't want to go back there and of course, Mary and Martha are the, the sisters of this man, and they want to see him heal. Now, we might be able to look at the story, we might be able to say, hey, um, you know, uh, we know why he didn't heal him, because he was going to raise him from the dead. But can we put ourselves in the sister's shoes just for a moment? Can we do that? And I think it's pretty easy to do because most of us have been in a similar situation. Most of us have been in a situation where we really wanted to see God do something and he didn't do what we wanted him to do. Can anybody say that they've been in that situation? All right. You might be in that situation right now. You're praying for something really, really hard. It could even be a loved one. It could be a sick one, sick, sick person in your family. And he didn't choose to do it. So... I think it would be important for us to look here at the story and actually look at how hard Jesus actually made it on all the characters in the story, including himself, by not healing Lazarus. A couple of things here. First of all, notice that he risked his life and the lives of the disciples. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, 
Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? In other words, the disciples say to Jesus, are you crazy? Are you really crazy? They just tried to kill you, and now you want to go back there. This time they're going to be successful, and they were probably going to kill us as well. Just heal him from here. By the way, I love Thomas's response. Look at verse 16. I just want to point this out. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I've always kind of felt bad for Thomas. I don't know about you, but Thomas only has a couple cameos uh, in the gospel. <laughs> and we really only know him for one thing, right? For the last 2,000 years, Thomas has actually been his middle name because his first name has been Doubting, Right? And I can just imagine, you know, people for the last 2,000 years, he's been in heaven. People come up to him and, and they say, what's your name? And he says, Thomas. And they say, Doubting Thomas? You know, he made one mistake and he's got to live with that for eternity, okay? And on the other hand, we actually see that there's another side to him. By the way, uh, we know from history that Thomas went on to have a, an incredible impact in spreading the gospel. But we see here that he was a man full of devotion and courage, Okay? Either that or he just had a death wish. I don't know. But uh, that's, uh, the point is here that we need to see is that there was a real risk for both Jesus and the disciples in going back near Jerusalem. Second thing that we see here is Jesus also made it hard on the sisters. He made it hard on the sisters. It was difficult for them. We're going to talk a lot more about this in a few moments. But you know what? Most of us know the pain and grief that they went through. And they clearly believed that Jesus could have healed him. And I guarantee they had to be questioning why he didn't do so. And you know what? There's no doubt that there are people here this morning who are in similar shoes. In fact, I I know this. Uh, I know that at any moment, really at any moment in any time, there are numerous people in our congregation who either have had a loved one that has just passed away or they have a loved one who is very, very sick and is at the point of death and they are praying that God will heal him. You heard me pray earlier. We had two families in the church this week. We had one family that lost a three-month-old son. And we had another family that lost a father who was relatively healthy in his mid-60s. That's just this week. And that's pretty much every week we have things like that happening in our church family. So it's a reality of almost where every one of us is today. And I just want to say to you this morning that if this is you, if this is you, this message today is for you. You need to hear this. The Lord has a word for you this morning. You know, the, perhaps the person, though, that got the, the worst end of this deal was Lazarus actually himself. All right? Not only did Lazarus uh, actually have to go through the pain of sickness and death, but he was raised again only to have to die once more. All right? Lazarus really got the raw end of the deal here in, in all of this. You know, he wasn't one of those people, by the way, who just uh, died for a few minutes, you know, and saw the light and got pushed back. Uh, in. He was dead for four days. His body had started to rot. And the next thing he knows, okay, is he's walking around in mummy clothes, okay, basically. But you get this. This is an important point I think we need to understand. Is that one moment, Lazarus is in heaven, he's with the Lord, he's free of pain and sickness, okay, and hurt, free of sin, no problems, everything's perfect, and the next moment, here he is back in this sin-sick world. And I have to wonder, I really do, uh, what it was like to be Lazarus. Can you imagine that he maybe went to Jesus afterwards, pulled him aside and said, you know, I'm really taking one for the team here, don't you know that? (laughs) 
And others, couldn't you just pick somebody else? It was really good. Now, now we can laugh about this. But the reality is, is if we truly believe what the, what the Bible says about heaven, once we are there, we aren't ever going to want to come back. And that would have been true, I believe, for Lazarus. But nevertheless, he was back. Finally, we need to note that Jesus actually caused himself quite a bit of pain and grief. Look at verse 32 with me. Look at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, our English translations actually do a pretty poor job with this passage. Because that word there, if you look in verse 33 where it says deeply moved... It really doesn't get the sense of what's going on here. Yes, Jesus was crying, but he wasn't probably crying like you maybe think that he was crying. All right? That deeply moved there literally means, the Greek word literally means to snort like a horse. To snort like a horse. Now, I don't know a whole lot about horses, but I think I do know that when a horse is snorting, he's snorting because he's angry, he's indignant, he's disgusted, and something isn't going the way that it should be going or the way that he wants it to go. And whilst Jesus certainly is emotional here, and he certainly is upset here, we also need to see that he's angry. He really is angry. And you might say, well, why is he emotional at all? Okay? Why is he emotional at all? Because he knows that in just a moment, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and everything's going to be good. Well, Jesus actually wasn't crying because Lazarus was dead. He wasn't upset because Lazarus was dead. But rather, he was overwhelmed by the pain and the hurt and the damage and the devastation of sin and his great enemy, death. That's why he's emotional and that's why he's angry. He was angry that sin had entered into this world and had devastated the beautiful, perfect creation that he and the Father had created. And he was overwhelmed with emotion at that. Now... We also need to see in this, however, that Jesus is identifying with us here. All right? In the Gospels, we, we have two things that we need to see. We need to see that Jesus is fully God, which is one of the primary purposes of the Gospel of John, by the way. But we also need to see that Jesus was fully man. And as a fully man, he also suffered as we suffered. He also was tempted as we are tempted. He also had trials as we are tried. He also had difficulties. And what you need to hear today from this passage and see is that when you hurt, God hurts. When you have pain, God has pain. When you cry tears, God cries tears. That he identifies, he understands, he knows what you are going through. Isaiah 53, 3 says this. It says that he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted. He was familiar with grief. He knew what it was like. He knows today what you were going through and how it affects you. Now, at the same time, we're still left with our question, aren't we? That's great. Jesus knows what it is uh, to suffer pain and to suffer hurt. But that doesn't answer the question, why? Why did he then, if he knew what it's like to hurt, why then did he allow all of this needless pain and suffering? If he wanted Lazarus to live, why didn't he just heal him? Why didn't he just make it easy on everyone? Well, the answer is in verse 4. And I want you to look at it with me here. This is the key verse in the passage. This answer is also in verse 40, but we'll just look at verse 4. This is a key, key verse really in the entire New Testament and certainly in this passage. He says this, but when Jesus heard it, 
he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying that Lazarus wasn't going to die because Lazarus does die. But what he's saying is, is that the ultimate outcome of the situation would not end up being Lazarus' death. Okay? That's not the ultimate outcome. And the reason for all of it, both his death and his coming resurrection, was so that the glory of the Father and of the Son might be made known. Let me clarify this for you a little bit more. What he's saying here is he's saying that the purpose of Lazarus' death is so that the Father might receive glory and that glory might be shown to be his as well. That's the purpose for Lazarus' death. In that actuality, this is the purpose for everything that happens. It's so that God might be glorified and the Son might be glorified through it as well. It's for the glory of the Father and the Son. Now, this is great, once again, but here's a problem, I think, that, uh, that I have recognized, is that I don't think we really understand what glory is and what it means. It's one of these Christian phrases that we throw around a lot, and you probably used this week, like, I just want to glorify God, and I hope God gets the glory for this, and to God be the glory. And we sing songs, and we use this phrase, and we quote uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, but I'm not so sure we actually know what we mean when we talk about the glory of God. And so I want to make it real clear and real simple for you here this morning. What is the glory of God? Let me give you a simple definition. God's glory can be defined as the wonder and the greatness of who he really is. God's glory is the wonder and the greatness of who he really is. And so when Jesus says that Lazarus' death is for the glory of God, he's saying that the purpose of it is so that we might be able to see how great and wonderful both the Father and the Son truly are. To see God's glory means that you see him for all the greatness and the wonder that he truly, truly is. To see him as he really is. So there's the definition. But while you've got the definition right now, You probably still don't have the answer that you want. It probably still doesn't say, okay, well, great, we understand what God's glory is. But how in the world does this story and this situation bring glory to God? It doesn't make sense to me. And you know what, friends? This is where the rubber meets the road for us. This is where it really hits home. This is where reality comes to roost. Because can we just be transparent here this morning? Don't we have many times where God doesn't do what we want him to do? And don't we have many times where God doesn't even do what we think that he should do? Don't we even have times where we see how God's character and how God some acts in the Bible and we say, that's the way that you should act now, and he doesn't do it the way that we think he should do it? In other words, let me give you an example for, for me. Okay, I am uh, one of those black and white guys. People who, who know me, uh, Scott Birmingham is an elder here. He and I are elders together, and we're in meetings all the time. And he will he could testify that from those things, I'm black and white. Okay, if something comes up, I'm saying this is the way it should be, or this is the way it shouldn't be. All right, Scott's not as black and white as I am. We have different personalities. But what that means for me is is that I'm pretty high on the justice scale, and we live in an unjust world. We live in a world where things aren't the way that they are supposed to be. And so it's really easy for me to see things not going the way that they're supposed to be and say, this is how it should happen. And God, this is what you should do. But the reality is, is sometimes, most of the time, God has different purposes in plan than I do. And so he's working differently than I want him to and even think that he should. But that makes it hard. That makes it hard. 
Because it's hard to see how God gets glory from some situations. And here's what I want to do in the rest of this message is I want us to look at the story of Lazarus and I want us to see how God gets the glory in this story. And I hope that that will help us understand how he gets the glory in ours. Let me share with you four things now. Four things, four ways in which God gets the glory from the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Number one, the death and resurrection of Lazarus prepared the disciples for the future. Prepare the disciples for the future. Now, unfortunately, in the Gospels, the disciples always seemed to be a step behind everybody else. They were a little slow. They just didn't get it. But Jesus knew that and understood that, and he worked incrementally in a process with them to develop them and prepare them for what was coming for them down the road. Jesus didn't see them as they were. He saw them as they were going to be, and he specifically brought things into them in specific times to teach them so he could develop them and bring them to where they were going to be. Specifically in this story, you need to realize that a couple of weeks after this, Jesus was going to be the one in the grave, and they were going to need to know need some assurance that things were going to work out. And you know what? God does the same thing to us. Those trials that you had this week or you're going to have this week, they are simply part of God's plan to sanctify you, to grow you, and to prepare you for the bigger trial that is coming down the road. Now, you might be saying, if there's a bigger trial coming down the road, I'm in big trouble, okay? I'm in big trouble. But but listen, God God is in control. He knows what's going on. He knows what you need. And he will only give you what you can handle right now in preparation for what's coming down the road. And he uses trials and he uses failures and he even uses successes to get us prepared for what he has for us. The second way that the death and resurrection of Lazarus bring glory to God is that it results in changed lives. If we were to read on, verse 45 tells us that as a result of Lazarus' resurrection, many people profess faith in Christ. Many people believed in him. And we need to understand today, by the way, that one of the primary reasons that God brings trials into people's lives is because he wants to bring them to faith in him. He uses those as opportunities to bring them to salvation. That may have even been true for many of you, that it was a crisis point in your life that he used to help you to recognize your need for a Savior. We had a great, uh, actually, testimony of this happening uh, here at Bethel a couple of weeks ago. Uh, from time to time, we will get phone calls from um, local hospitals or facilities in uh, Crown Point or in the surrounding area asking if a pastor can come and can pray pray with someone or talk with someone. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a man in a facility here in Crown Point here was, who was near to death. Okay, he was, he was basically, they thought he was on his deathbed. And um, he didn't have a church affiliation, wasn't really religious at all. But one of the uh, ladies who was caring for him is a member of our church. And so she called the church office and uh, she said, uh, hey, can somebody go over and and talk with this man? And we have an on-call system here at the church. So one of the pastors is on call uh, every day. My day is today, so please don't call this afternoon, okay? Um, And, uh, but... Uh, actually, actually happened to be uh, Dustin, our, our worship pastor, was on call that day. And Dustin's just a new pastor, so he really didn't have a whole lot of experience with this. It was actually kind of a trial for him as well. But Dustin went over to the facility, and he sat down with the man. And as this man is dying and weak, and it was even hard really to, to talk to him and understand uh, him and what he was saying, Dustin shared the gospel with him, prayed with the man. And you know what happened? The man professed faith in Christ. The man came to know the Lord as his Savior. But it gets even better yet. 
The guy's brother comes in, comes in to see him. The guy tells him what happens. You know what that happens to that guy? He professes faith in Christ as well. You know what happens next? The guy's mom comes in to see him. He shares with his mom what had happened. What happens then? His mom professes faith in Christ. Now, by the way, yeah, you can clap for that. Now, we hopefully even will see this man here uh, someday because he didn't die and he is alive uh, today, okay? And so uh, we are thankful that he has uh, eternal life um, and he's also still uh, living around and we hope to be able to fellowship with him and disciple him. But you know what? That's how God works. That's how he works. And the reason that he works that way is he's not primarily concerned with the here and now. He's not primarily, primarily concerned with our physical life, although he is concerned with that as well. He's primarily concerned with us spending eternity with him. And he's committed to using whatever means necessary in order to bring people to a saving knowledge of him and helping us to treasure him above all else. By the way, the greatest example of a changed life in this passage is actually Lazarus himself. Now, it's interesting because Lazarus, he's mentioned several times in the Gospels, he never says a word. He never says a word. And here, we see him, he's on his deathbed, he dies, and at the end of the story, he's wrapped up in, uh, in grave clothes, okay? Walking around like a mummy. Alright, he doesn't say anything, but we know from chapter 12 that his testimony post-resurrection was so great and so powerful that the Pharisees decided that they needed to kill him as well, so they made plans not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus as well. And you need to understand here, folks, that the primary reason that you are on the earth today, if you are a follower of Jesus, the primary purpose and reason that you are still here today is not for yourself, okay? It is so that you can be a testimony to what Jesus has done to you. Because if you are a believer, you have been resurrected already, okay? In other words, eternally, spiritually, you have eternal life. And the purpose for that is so you can be a testimony so others can come to know him as well. Otherwise, when you, uh, when you received Christ, you would have just gone to heaven then and it would have been done with. But you're still here. And you're here for a purpose. Alright, third thing. Third thing that we can see here that brings glory to God is in changed life. I'm sorry, in the deepening of the sister's faith. In deepening of the sister's faith. Alright, now if you've been asleep so far to this point, or you've nodded off, or I've lost you, you need to re-engage here, because every person in this room needs to see what Jesus has to say to us in verses 5 through 6. Okay? So look at verses 5 through 6, because you probably missed this when we read it earlier, but note what it says. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so you got that? Jesus loved them. And then what's the next word in verse 6? It is, so... Because, okay, we could just put in because. And because he loved them, or because of that, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You know what this is saying? It's, it's actually saying that because he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he let Lazarus die. That, that, that's what it just says there. Now that doesn't make sense to us because that's not the normal way that we think. We normally think that if Jesus loves me, he will do what I want him to do. If Jesus loves me, he will heal the sick family member. If Jesus loves me, he will give me what I want and what I think that I need. But that's not what is going on here. Jesus is working differently. Because he loved them, he let Lazarus die. How can that be? What's going on here? Well, we need to realize that Mary and Martha are a lot like us. 
They're a lot like us. They believed in Jesus to a point. Their faith went so far, but it didn't go all the way. They believed that Jesus could heal Lazarus, but they did not believe that Jesus could raise him from the dead. And we see this here. It's really, really interesting. You know, there's a lot of interesting characters in the Bible. You know what I'm talking about? A lot of interesting people. Martha is one of those interesting people. All right? And we literally see that Jesus has this interaction with her where he basically tells Martha, I'm going to raise your brother from the dead. And then we get to the end of the story, and Jesus is at the tomb, and he says to Martha, okay, take the stone away. And what does Martha say? He stinks. He's stinky. We're not going to open there. Not realizing that Jesus had just told her that he was going to raise her from the dead. And here's the problem. Jesus wouldn't stand for that kind of faith then, and he doesn't stand for that kind of faith today. He wants us to trust him completely for everything. He wants us to treasure him and what he has to say and what he wants us to do more than anything else in life. And that at times requires that he brings incredible difficulty into our lives so that we can give up all the idols that we have and worship him and him alone. And that's what he was doing to Mary and Martha. And that's what he may be doing to you today. Now, I came across just an incredible quote this week as I was uh, preparing from a guy named James Boyce who pastored in Philadelphia for, for many, many years. And he says this. He says, on this point, we need to learn to interpret circumstances by the love of Christ and not Christ's love by circumstances. Let me read this again. We need to learn to interpret circumstances by the love of Christ and not Christ's love by circumstances. Because here's what happens. When I begin with the fact that God loves me and I know that he loved me because he was willing to give up his son for me. And I start with that fact. Then I have a grid through which I can interpret all of my circumstances and through which my circumstances can then begin to make sense. On the other hand, if I start with my circumstances and use my circumstances to interpret God's love, then I will not only begin to question God's love, but my circumstances also will not make sense. Just think of your circumstances. If God's not a part of it and he doesn't love you, what sense do your circumstances make? Absolutely none. But if you start with God's love, then you can begin to see how God is working through your circumstances to work on you and in you and to bring about his glory. Now, this doesn't mean it makes it easier, but it does help it to make sense and help you to see what God is doing. I just want to take a moment here this morning. I'm just going to share with you an example of how God is using and teaching this point and this truth uh, in my life and, and really in the last couple of years, but specifically in recent weeks. You wouldn't have noted this this morning, uh, but my wife, who uh, Eva, who is uh, our choir director, and um, uh, you wouldn't know this by maybe what you saw this morning, but for the last year and a half, almost two years, Eva has been in incredible pain, incredible pain. She has a herniated disc. She has nerve damage in her neck. She has damage to her hip. She has numbness in her arm. And over the last year and a half, she has uh, had numerous procedures and surgeries, uh, she's seen, I can't tell you how many doctors, we've paid thousands of dollars in medical bills. And this week she went to the doctor, post-op, to see what was going on. And he told her, you know, I don't think that we fixed the problem and you're probably going to have to have another major surgery. Now, I have to tell you, uh, when I hear that, when I heard that, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. Because I can see the way that this is affecting her specifically, affecting my kids, affecting me, and I just don't get it. 
And here's how the mind of a, of a pastor works, okay? Eva's on staff, so she's ministering to people. I'm on staff, I'm ministering to people. We spend a, a majority of our lives in this place and with people in, in the church. And I look at this and I say, you know what, God? If you would just take this away, all right, and heal her, that would allow us to do what you've called us to do much, much better, and we'd be more effective in ministering all of these people that you have brought to Bethel Church. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it makes sense to me. But you know what? That ain't what God's doing. And when I look at John 11, here's the answer. The answer is, don't start with your circumstances. Don't start with the pain. Don't start with the hurt. Start with the fact that I love you. And there are things that I need to do in Eva. And there are things that I need to do in your kids. And primarily, uh, mostly in this situation, are things that he needs to do on me and in me. And I have to start with that. And as I do that, it still doesn't mean that everything's okay, but I can then begin to see, okay, there are things that I need to grow in. There are things that I need to change. And the ultimate end of this is going to be my good, her good, and the church's good, and the people that I'm around good, if I will follow him and submit to what he is doing here. By the way, if you want to know what you can pray for me about it, you can pray for patience, okay? My kids are over here uh, on, on this section, and they can tell you dad needs to work on patience, all right? And so whatever the situation is that you come here with, don't start with your circumstances. Start with the fact that God loves you. And if you doubt that God loves you, all you have to do is look to the cross and realize that his son was willing to take the ultimate pain of being separated from his father and bearing the sin of the entire world on him so that he could show you that he loves you. Okay? The ultimate testament of that. Bethel, we need to get this. God loves us so much that he is committed to doing whatever it takes to give us what we need the most. And you know what we need the most? We need to trust him completely for everything. Because when we trust him completely for everything and quit trying to do things on our own, then he comes in wonderfully, meets our needs as he does in this story. We get the good and he gets the glory. That's how it's supposed to work. All right, let me give you one more thing and we'll be done. The most important thing, of course, and that is that the death and the resurrection of of Lazarus showed that Jesus was the ultimate answer. It showed that Jesus was the ultimate answer. Now, uh, last week, Steve shared a couple of uh, movie movie references from some of his favorite movie references. Since he did it, I can do it. And um, some of my favorite movies are the superhero movies, okay? A lot of people like those. Specifically, I like the Batman movies, the new ones, not the old ones, okay? The new ones and the Spider-Man series, all right? And one of my favorite, um, my favorite scenes from those movies is in Spider-Man 2, all right? And Dr. Octopus, I know this is silly, just stick with me, it'll make a point, all right? Dr. Octopus, okay, has kidnapped Mary Jane. She's always getting kidnapped, but she gets kidnapped, all right? And he also has the tritium with which it, he's going to use to blow up New York City. So we've got all of this massive, massive issue going on. At the same time, uh, Harry and Peter slash Spider-Man are in this argument because Harry believes that Spider-Man has killed his dad. And Harry wants to argue about this point, and yet New York City is about to be blown up, and Mary Jane is about to be killed. And Peter simply looks at Harry and he says this. He says, bigger things are happening here than you and me. 
Bigger things are happening here than you and me. And the point that you need to get here from John 11 and in your life is that there are bigger things that are happening than the here and now. There are bigger things that are happening than your suffering and your difficulty. There are bigger things that are happening than the trial that you are going through. Jesus makes this clear in verses 25 through 26. Last two verses we will look at. Notice what you, by the way, these are two of the most important verses in the entire New Testament. All right? Look at them carefully with me. They're great, wonderful truths. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, Jesus is saying is that there are bigger things happening here than Lazarus being dead. The bigger thing that's happening is, is I am the resurrection and the life. The bigger thing is, is that I am offering you eternal life. Now there's a lot of, this might seem a little confusing. What exactly is Jesus saying? Lives and dies and all this kind of stuff. Here's what he's saying. Okay? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that you can have eternal life and you can have eternal life by believing in me. That even though you will die physically one day, you can have eternal life and you can have that eternal life right now. And eternal life comes only through and in me. Do you believe? And then he says, do you believe that? That eternal life can be had right now. That when we die one day, we don't die and cease to exist. That one moment we are here on this earth and in the next breath, We are with the Father forever. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Now, if you were to go on in the story here, at the end, verses 45 and on, you would see that there are two different responses to what Jesus has to say and two different responses to the resurrection. Alright, the one response is, is that there were many people who saw this. By the way, Jesus did this intentionally so there would be a lot of people around. Alright, did all of this intentionally. Do you get that? He intentionally waited for Lazarus to die. He intentionally waited until Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. He intentionally did it when there were lots of people around the sea. He intentionally did it near Jerusalem so that the Pharisees would see and that they would eventually then decide to kill him. Alright, all of this is intentional. All of this is planned, on, planned out. But there are two types of responses. Those who believed, and then there are others who ran and told the Pharisees what had happened. Those who did not believe. Two types of people then. There are two types of people here today. There are two types of people for all eternity. There are those who believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And there are those who do not. And really, at the end of the day, the ultimate decision for all eternity is which side are you going to be on? And I want to talk to both groups this morning. First of all, I want to talk to the group of those of you who have believed in Jesus, those of you who are following him. What does this mean for you? Well, this passage, especially verses 25 and 26, is the bedrock of our faith. The fact that no matter what happens to us in this life, we have eternal life. There is nothing that can take that from us. That even though we are suffering and may have difficulty, and even though one day we will die and our body, this body will rot away, our spirit will live in heaven eternally with him, and one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to give us a new body as well. That should be the bedrock of our faith. That should be something that we have firmly within our hearts and in our minds and in our lives so that nothing, nothing can shake us. What can take us away from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? The answer to that, Paul says in Romans, is nothing. It's nothing. So whatever trial and difficulty you're facing right now, it's, it's temporary. It's temporary. Doesn't mean it's not significant, but it is temporary. You have eternal life and you have it right now. 
However, there's another group of people here in the room today. And that is a group of people who don't believe or not sure if they believe or don't really care very much about what I'm saying right now. But the reality is this, is that everybody dies. It's inevitable. We're getting close to tax season, right? There's two things that are inevitable, death and taxes. I don't know so much about the taxes, but death is inevitable. Everybody dies. There are a handful of people in history who have gotten a second chance, like Lazarus. You are not likely to be one of them. You're not likely. I don't think anybody in here is going to be resurrected uh, in this lifetime. And so the decision comes down to is what are you going to do with Jesus? Here's the great thing, though. Even though you will not be resurrected, likely, you can have eternal life and you can have it today. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever believes in Jesus. Now, how can Jesus offer this? How can he actually say he's the resurrection and the life? It's great. I can say that. But how can Jesus say it? Let me tell you how Jesus can say it. Because a couple of weeks after he raises Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees would finally get their way. They would finally convince the Romans that they needed to kill Jesus. And so the Roman soldiers would take him and they would nail him to a tree. And on that tree, he would die for you and he would die for me. He would die for your sins. He would die for my sins. He would die in our place. He would do so to take the wrath of God for our sins. He would do so to enable us now to come into a relationship with God. He would take our sins, and the Old Testament says, as far as the east is from the west, he would remember them no more. He'd throw them into the sea. They are gone. He would allow us now to approach the Father, to spend eternity with him. And then three days later, after they had put him in that grave, he would come out of that grave. But he would do so differently than Lazarus did. Lazarus came in only to go, came out only to go back in again. Jesus came out to never die again. And he's still alive today and he will be alive forever. He's at the right hand of the Father and he is offering this, the same eternal life that he has and that others of us in this room have. He's offering it to you today. I just have to tell you that we would like nothing more. This is why this, this church exists to bring glory to God by bringing other people to him as well. That's why we are here. That's why we do what we do. And we would like nothing better, and God would like nothing better, more importantly, than to see those of you here who do not know him come to know him today. At the end of the service, I'm going to be here. We'll have uh, some of our staff here. We'll have some of our elders, prayer counselors will be in the front. Please come down and talk to us. Let, us. let us pray with you. Let us share with you more. Or there are lots of people in this auditorium here who would be more than willing just to share with you. You don't need to talk to one of us. Just ask the person who is next to you. Make today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray.